Welcome to Inspired Artist Podcast with me, Porter Singer. In this episode, I have the honor of speaking with Jai Jagdish. This is an episode that has been in the making for quite a long time. I asked her, oh, maybe a year or two ago to be on the podcast, not for any particular reason, but just to have her voice be part of this transmission. And, you know, she wasn't ready. And I, to her credit, she just kept getting in contact with me and kind of giving me updates and telling me (laughs) that she was approaching readiness. And finally, we got to record this episode. So this is the product of that encounter. And I also want to let everyone know that this is a special day for her because today, Friday, April 8th, she releases a new song, which is called Road to Somewhere. We kind of forgot to talk about that in the episode, so I did want to highlight that in the beginning. She gave me a statement for this, which I will attempt not to cry through, but this is in her words. Road to Somewhere puts words and music to the grief of a painful path. When everything is hazy and nebulous, when emotions are intense and persistent, when nothing feels solvable. For me, this song encapsulated the roller coaster of a deeply challenging post trauma chapter of life. It was cathartic to tell the story of that time and to say, I don't know, instead of, I figured everything out. It enabled me to be okay with not being okay, which is what I hope this song does for others. All right, so (laughs) that song is available on every platform you can think of, so please look for that in song form and video starting today. Um, This episode was actually really hard for me to get through, Um, not in the moment that we did it, but afterwards, and I had a hard time getting myself to post it, honestly, because it just brought up so much from my past. And... um, I'm really grateful that we did it and I still want everybody to hear it. So I'm finally ready to post it and here we are. And I will be sharing at the end a little outro statement from her because I asked her at the end if there was anything more she wanted to add. And after we had finished, she thought of something else. So I just wanna include that too. And to thank her for being willing to share and to be willing to talk about, you know, what's going on now in her life, which is, you know, I think for everybody, we just kind of want to look forward and keep going. So without further ado, here we go. This is Jai Jagdish. This has been a long time coming. I'm so excited that you, we finally found time. (laughs) I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for asking and for being so patient through the long stretch of time. When I said, "Mm, I don't think I can right now. Not yet. Maybe eventually oh my God, I need to go bury my head in the sand for a while. (laughs) Life, uh, the level of intensity has been so high for the past couple of years for all of us in different ways. And uh, for you and I in a certain very specific way. (laughs) Yeah, that, that need to like still keep performing and doing everything I was doing before all the changes started to happen was was that is definitely something I could relate to so good for you for for taking time yeah. uh I I actually felt the same guilt about it that probably anybody does when they're put in that position but I I recognized that my mental health was very poor and when your cup is empty you have nothing to pour like that's a, a butchering of somebody's very um very succinct statement but <laughs> Yeah, that I needed to get past that to be able to sit here with you. So again, thank you for your patience. Not, not at all. Not at all. We've everybody's had to have a lot of patience lately, anyway. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? With everything in every possible arena of life, everything is moving, and I think necessarily slower than it used to. Mm. We all recalibrated. Um, during this time, we all found ourselves recognizing that we'd been pushing too hard for too long and that nobody benefits when we're constantly on the edge of burnout or working from within burnout. And it was, it was remarkable to look around and watch people I know and love sit down in the middle of their life and say, oh, this isn't working for me anymore. 
I wonder what does work. Let me explore that. Let's give other things a try. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that, um, that the resources have existed to be able to do this. And I am grateful that uh, so many of the people that I work with have the same level of patience and we're going through the same recalibration as I was. Hmm. So I would love to start because we were talking a little bit before we were talking. We talked before we talked about, <laughs> about uh, your project that you did with Ian. Um, because I had sort of assumed when I heard the album that you had like read a book and then you had like wanted to write all these songs about it, but it doesn't sound like it went quite that way. No. So I'll give some context. Ian Urbina is a New York Times reporter who has been writing a series called The Outlaw Ocean for, I want to say, the better part of a decade. He's been investigating what happens on the high seas, and it runs the gamut from illegal dumping of oil to um, fishing practices that are extremely harmful to human trafficking. I mean, it's it's as intense and horrifying as you can imagine. And he has been um, undercover in some instances and then blatant in others gathering data so that he can paint a picture for the rest of the world to know what's going on. I had no idea of his work until he reached out to me and I later learned to like 500 other musicians and said, I'm compiling all of these articles that I've written over the years into a book that really focuses intensely on the issues that I've been chronicling. And I had this idea to create a soundtrack for it, even though it's not actually going to become a film, even though um, there's not a visual media for the music to pair to, I would love to get you a copy of the book and have you dig into it and then choose themes or choose um, particular topics that I that I went really specific on and tell that story. Of course, through our lens as artists, of course, with our own selves as the producer and executive producer. And it, I don't know, he, he put it on the table so, so clearly for me and also in a way that helped me understand how big his vision and the potential impact was. And I found myself going, well, I am in a period of creative emptiness, but I can't say no to this. This is, this is something so important. This is something that is in alignment with my, my wishes for how we can make change in the world. You know, the more people know about a thing, the more likely that thing is to be given a chance to change or transform or be ended. Um, things, things die when they sit in the dark. Uh, things, horrible things continue to happen when they sit in the dark. But if you've got someone like him shining a light on it, and then you've got 500 different bands or musicians shining their own light on it and sharing it with the people who happen to pay attention to what they do, that exponentially increases the amount of visibility that an issue has. So I took a deep breath and said, I have no idea where I'm gonna find the inspiration. I have no idea where I'm gonna find the musicality. I have no idea where I'm gonna find the words, if there will be words, but I will do it. And I will say yes to your deadline, even though I'm quite sure that I'm not gonna be able to meet it. And uh, yeah, we just, we rolled with it. My producer, Ramdas, whom you know well, um, who has produced your music as well, he, uh, he was a willing partner in this, so enthusiastic, so up for the challenge. We sat down with our friend Bogdan Jukic uh, down in Mexico and we just dug into the themes and the, the sounds that we could pull out of how we make music that could that could give of place and a sense of scale and a sense of gravity. It was it was an extraordinary thing to get to be a part of and no better partners than the two of them, really. As you were talking about that, I didn't realize that 
so many other musicians had done um, inspired works from Ian, Urbina, Ian Urbina's book. So it's it's one book. It's a compilation of his articles. Yeah, right? it's called The Outlaw Ocean. The Outlaw Ocean. He created something called The Outlaw Ocean Music Project. And each of us made music under that umbrella and we co-released it, him as, as an artist and each of us as an artist under each project. And then they built a playlist. Um, I know about it on Spotify. I'm sure they built playlists on all of the other streaming services as well, but that just has all of the music together. I could pull it up now, but I don't want to focus on another screen. I'll yeah. simply say, I think it is many hours of music. Not everybody made a full length album. Some people just recorded a song or two. I made an EP that totaled five songs, four of which are sung. One of which is spoken word on top of um, an incredible layered mix of ambient sounds and distortions and things that can really give you a sense of place and time. Um, three of them have lyrics. One of them is just uh, vocalization on top of um, Bogdan. He was bowing his violin in a way that sounded an awful lot like whale song. And I just sang on top of that. So we, we started it with that and then carried into um, different stories, one of which is from the perspective of a person um, on one of those boats there, there unwillingly, there by force, one of which is from the perspective of the vessel itself, and one of which was from the perspective of the sea. Mm. And uh, it, it was hard, but it was great. And it was an unexpected detour from the music that I had been making to date, but it was perfect because it allowed me to pivot away from the music that I had been making to date, which no longer really felt like uh, a safe space for me. Yeah. But so interesting that you sort of are used to being part, I mean, there's a lot of similarities for me as I'm listening to you say this, or like parallels, I mean, not similarities, but mm -hmm. like, because you came from a music style where there is like a whole community and it fits within a kind of a landscape. And then like to have this project where you're also fitting within a community, I mean, totally different community, but you know, how, how lovely to be able to, to make that transition. Cause that is a really, sim it's sort of similarly purposeful, I would imagine. Yeah. I, I hadn't made that connection, but you're absolutely right. It's, it felt like I was a part of something that so many minds and hearts and little creative engines were contributing to. And certainly the music that I have come from has that same feeling for me, or at least did for a long time where like everyone was coming to it with their own unique style and flavor and, and, the lyrics that flowed out of them, if they did want to choose something other than Gurmukhi or Sanskrit, which is what so many people recorded in. Um, but everyone's intention with it was to make something sweet and beautiful and therapeutic for people to listen to. Ultimately, something that's meant to serve something so much bigger than any one of us as, as artists earning an income in the music industry or as um, people putting work out. And, uh, you know, oftentimes artists are seeking validation for what they create. And I'm sure that that was true for each of us in turn, but it also felt like there was a much bigger picture than somebody patting you on the back and saying, you did a great job. Like, yes, that feels lovely. And at the same time, if someone came to me and told me that a song I wrote had held space for them while they were birthing a child or saying goodbye to a parent, that, that's it. My job is done. And it doesn't matter if, if the rest of the world likes or hates what I made. Mm -hmm. that, that served, uh, it settled any messy voices in my my mind and heart that might be clamoring for more or clamoring for different yeah yeah that reminds me of when I was in college and I was 
making the decision to be a, I thought was going to be maybe like a musical theater artist or a singer songwriter or something like that. It was really hard to muster the motivation to do music for my own sake. And so coming into the, you know, the Kundalini yoga community for me was like, it gave me a purpose. And so I felt like more, I don't know, I guess it was easier to value what I was doing, but mm. yeah. How interesting. Yeah. I could see that. My experience was so different because I was born into this right. community. I was born um, in a yogic household in an ashram. My parents had been practicing kundalini yoga and they had been a part of 3HO for years before I was born. Um, and so all of these sounds and all of this, all of what people came to later, like test out, it had been my environment for the entirety of my life. And so it didn't necessarily feel like I was trying something on or, or giving some new possibility, uh, giving some new possibility, an opportunity to exist. It just felt like living and doing the things that I had always done and being a little more courageous than I'd been before because sharing it in a small way is very different from sharing it in a big way. So many barriers have to be broken and so many uncomfortable spaces have to be moved through in order to make that kind of a transition. But it just felt like home. So when I speak of the loss I feel of my connection to that music and that, that community, um, I'm referencing, uh, I don't even know how to succinctly put it. I wanna make sure that it's explained here for anyone who's not familiar, but I, I don't know if there are a dozen words that could say the whole thing. So I guess I'll say that things were revealed about all the people in positions of power, most especially the one in the highest position of power that pulled the rug out from under all of us. and made me see every single thing that I had believed or practiced or even taught because I did eventually become a teacher of Kundalini Yoga, made me look at it all through a different lens, understanding that this person's ultimate goal wasn't actually the upliftment of the entire community that he said it was and that we all believed it was. His ultimate goal was more and more power and enriching himself and the ability to manipulate everyone, the person closest to him, the person furthest away in the, the spectrum of members of the community, um, the person with the most um, assets and the person with the least, it was just a giant chess game. And I had taken steps away from this community uh, in my teens. It just didn't feel comfortable to me. Um, my therapist says I probably knew what was what at that moment, but couldn't articulate it. However, I don't know that I would give myself that much credit. I just know that it didn't feel like my identity and I wanted something different. So I took steps away, but your, the environment in which we grow up so often remains the place that we identify as home. So there was always a foot still in here. There was always a connection. And then I found myself gravitating back, wanting to become a teacher and possibly maybe become a teacher trainer and wanting to share something that I felt had enriched my life so much. And it married so well with the music that I was making and so on and so forth. And the re-examining of all of what I had taken in, all the things that mattered to me and that I believed um, has been heartbreaking and so sad and 
there's a lot of anger, which is the thing that shows its head the least. <laughs> but one of the songs on um, an album I recorded that will see the light of day at some point this year or next, um, uh, it uses the mantra akal, which means deathless. And I felt safe there because it's a word from a language that does not belong to this person. It's a word from a lineage that existed before this teacher existed. And it also felt like I had so much to grieve. And I just wanted to use that word that felt like it was a part of my home and, and my, my roots. I wanted to use it to grieve. And I sang it from the pit of my soul. And I can't hear that recording now without, I don't wanna say I burst into tears, but they just run down my face. That's, that's it. And it's good, it's cathartic, it's therapeutic, but it's hard and it's sad. Yeah. There's some well, rage in it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there, well, that's, I think that's nor very normal. <laughs> To be expected. Yes, yes. But I, I really loved. So I remember before any of this was known, you kind of made this decision, and it wasn't like you announced it. It was just sort of this organic decision. It seemed like to me. Maybe you have a. You probably have a different perspective of it. But where you know, is, well, you released that album, right? It was down, down come the walls, down. Yeah, and you know, suddenly you weren't covering your head and you weren't, you know, doing, doing the things that I guess you were supposed to. Um, and I came at it from two, from two vantage points actually, because I was like very, very much in the system before, you know, in the beginning of that. And so it was a little triggering. I mean, of course you were because yeah. it beckoned with such wide open arms and said, this is a safe place come here, you will be loved, your identity will be respected, you'll be able to be the best version of yourself, like it made so many promises. Yeah. But I'm saying like, from watching you go through this transition, I wasn't ready for it when you were. But then I think it was like a couple years later, I it just like, I was kind of revisiting my, my home, which had nothing to do with, you know, any of the, the 3HO stuff. And, uh, wanting to explore different things and be a little bit less restrictive and had nothing to do with any negative information, just kind of a feeling of feeling very constrained. And I remember thinking about the choices that you had made and just because it was so hard for me to make them at the time, like I didn't want to be wearing a turban anymore and I didn't want to be following so many strict protocols. And I was thinking, man, it's really hard for me to be authentic in this arena, but I didn't grow up in this. Like how much more difficult must it have been for, for Jai Jagdish, you know, and her family, like how courageous. You know, that album was really scary, but I think for different reasons than you might even imagine. Hmm. I felt like I was telling, felt like I was telling stories that that were really, really, really vulnerable. Um, even though it might not appear that way when you hear the album, I actually felt like I had reached into my heart and pulled it out and was handing it to everybody. It's one of the reasons why it was titled Down Come the Walls, even though there's no song on the album with that track. So often artists like to have a title track on their album, but I stopped doing that a long time ago because I realized I wanted my titles to encapsulate the feeling of the collection and not specifically point to one track and say, this is the one that's special. It just, yeah, that's, that's been the case ever since my first one. Um, and Down Come the Walls was, it was really rich musically, incredibly layered, very slickly produced, I would say. And we were recording in a space that the Grateful Dead had once recorded in, that some really amazing oh, work really? made in. Yeah. That's cool. And the thing, the, the reason I reference that is because we were using like top of the line, extraordinary gear that allows for the capture of things like the essential 
parts of the instrument and the voice. It, 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 it seemed to elevate everything we were doing. It was like the gear was an instrument. Um, and I don't know, between the polish and the truth, of it and the unusualness of some of the, the stylistic choices that I had made. Um, and the fact that I've always been somewhat unsingalongable, <laughs> I, I felt a definite sense of discomfort. I remember being at a Satnam Fest um, a couple of months before the album came out. And because I had been teasing it and I had done a whole series of listening parties with it, I decided to perform majority music from that album at that Satnam Fest, even though nobody was really familiar with it. You know, typically we're sharing things that people know and, and are automatically swaying to because they may be on a favorites list or they, they sing along um, even if they don't know all the words, they just belt it out and jump into the fray and it's so amazing. Um, with this one, nobody knew any of it. I was going to be teaching it to them in that moment. And I wrote to, I texted a bunch of my friends and family members who happened to be at the festival early in the day of my concert and said, hey, everyone, I'm feeling really tender. I would be so grateful if you could circle up with me just before I go on stage so that I can look into the faces of all the people I love and be reminded that I will be held at every moment while I am up there doing this vulnerable thing. And um, they all showed up and we had a big group hug. And then somebody gave me a, a fuzzy little alpaca that I took on stage with me and the audience named it Tina for me, of course, from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> and it was joyous, but I don't know that it could have been as free and as joyous, if not for the amazing band that I was there with and the loving support of all of my people. Um, that, however, I suppose that's more the moment that I stopped caring about the clothing itself. I had decided early on, I think when I graduated from the boarding school in India, I turned to my parents and said, I'm never putting on a turban again. This is not who I am. It's not comfortable. I hate it. No. And I, I didn't have to fight with anyone on that. They were very supportive. My mother did ask me the following year if I would please wear one on Mother's Day because she thought I looked beautiful in it. And I did that for her. But that was the last time. It was like Mother's Day 20. No, I graduated before this century. Um, <laughs> Mother's Day, maybe... 1999 or something like that. <laughs> that was the last time. So when I began to um, record music and when Spirit Voyage came on board as a supporter and um, we started talking about how I wanted to present myself, who I was as an identity and how much I wanted that to match what I put out. I said, listen, I feel very comfortable in all the clothing that was most familiar to me as a child, but it's not the only clothing that I wear. And I will never put on a turban. And not that they were trying to pressure me into doing anything. Mm -hmm. Just as the conversation went on, this is how I sort of laid everything out. Um, I said, I, I will probably cover my head because I feel like it's the expected thing, but I don't have that relationship with, um, with garb. And I also don't want to put the last name Kalsa or even the middle name Carr on my name. Um, those are legal parts of my name, but those are not truly my identity. And so I made a very conscious choice to start from this particular foundation. And then I watched myself have impulses that caused that to evolve and shift and, and expand. The, the concert you're talking about, was that West? Yes. Fest West? Okay, yes, I was there. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. We had a good time. Everybody <laughs> was singing even though they'd never heard any of them before. Yeah, you did a good job. Well, I mean, I feel like that happens, you know, that's probably not something that you had been used to at the time, but like you can give an audience a chorus and they can, yes, you know. True. Yeah. I told them, there's one song I, um, I wrote called 13 Times that's mm. like a, and I'm going to be me anthem kind of thing. 
and there's a bridge that has this snappy little movement of all of the lyrics. And I said to everybody, I would like to teach you this so that we can sing it together if you're up for that. And then whenever I tour with this in the future, I want you all to, to be the first to sing without me even telling you the, the lyrics. <laughs> that was, I mean, that's a, um, that's a festival thing to do. <laughs> I felt a little silly about it afterwards, but that didn't keep me from doing it again in the future. <laughs> Always encouraging people to join in for that. And it was great. Everybody jumped in, even though they weren't sure of the words, they stumbled through them a little bit. We laughed together and then the song continued. And that's, that's what's so great about live music is the, the sort of crackling, this has not happened before and it will not happen again aspect of each moment. Hmm. I, I find it interesting what you said about how for you, it wasn't the clothing, but the fact that you were sharing these stories that felt so vulnerable to you, because I remember from way before 3HO when I was writing songs, they're basically like these journal entries set to music. And I would feel so, it, would, it was like this heart-wrenching process of like bleh, spewing to like everybody all the time. Like, you know, and my heart's like breaking every time I had to perform these songs. Um, but, but like nobody else in the audience understood. <laughs> you know, sure. it's not like they, it's, you know, it's probably the same thing for you, I'm guessing. It's like, it doesn't feel personal to the one listening because everybody just makes it about themselves. Yeah, and I think fellow artists in the audience would absolutely understand anybody who creates something and then hands it to a viewer hands it to the person who's going to put on headphones hands it to a gallery and then it's for all the world to see like that is I think for most artists a very vulnerable moment regardless of the contents of that music like I was nervous just before my first album came out I had no no past experience of releasing music. I had no template for how to do it. I, you know, walking into the unknown. <laughs> um, and I've had exactly the feeling that you just described, like writing things that came straight off the page of a journal and feeling the words catch in my throat as I was trying to sing them in my own in, behind closed doors in my own environment singing them and feeling the sense of like oh it's too personal don't say it out loud or if I claim something big like I have a song called light of love that the the pre-chorus has a lot of affirmations in it and they're all big um, particularly the last section uh, it says I am everything great and small I am the one I am at all and I used to joke that that was my matrix line because Neo is the one, right? <laughs> but that joke always fell flat <laughs> in live events. So I stopped telling it. <laughs> um, but maybe not enough matrix fans at your concert. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember singing it and promptly bursting into tears and then realizing that I was going to need to keep singing it behind closed doors until. I had cried out all the tears so that I could sing it for other people without breaking down and they could just receive it as words and melody and music and affirmation for them rather than me going through a process. Mm -hmm. I can't claim that future music won't make me just burst into tears on stage because all of this feels very different to what came in the past decade, but yeah. maybe I'll cry it all out in private before <laughs> I do any more live events <laughs> yeah that's rough I have a hard time not crying when I write songs and when I when I sing them now I haven't done a lot of performing it lately but yeah there's there I mean it, it means I think if you cry it's like it's it's significant it's uh, it's powerful absolutely yeah. it's touching something that is the deepest part of you whether it is um whether it is a new belief that needs water and just feels so tender that that we can't not cry or whether it's an insecurity that feels like it's never going to go away and what we're singing sort of serves to say no to the insecurity push back against that feeling or any number of other things I mean every every one of us has a different set of 
things that poke at our insides, um, plenty of commonality. The human experience has such a universality to it, but each of us has our, our different layers. And I would imagine you could probably sing Light of Love without breaking a sweat. Um, right, right, it's not personal, right? Huh? Yeah. It's not personal. Yeah. 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 Oh, if, although I could make it personal, like I can sing songs that, you know, like that I haven't written that will make me cry too. That's yeah. That's fully relatable. Yeah. I have, I have a playlist on Spotify called songs. I wish I wrote. <laughs> and sometimes I, I sing along with one of them while I'm listening, but more often than not, I'm just marveling at their brilliance and the fact of their existence. But oftentimes when I am singing along with one of them, I will feel that familiar catch in my chest and my throat of, God, the, the phrasing of this or the way it is interpreted musically or the string section underneath it. Oh, how delicious and achingly sad and whatever else, fill in the blank. <laughs> What's your favorite of all the songs you've, you've written to date? I want to see what that playlist is. <laughs> oh, I have not yet made it public. Um, oh, okay, okay. I'm like, I want to see what songs are on that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, after we finish recording, I will make it public so that you and anyone else who wants to Oh, that would be cool. I'll share that. Yeah. Make a note to myself. Uh, my favorite song that I've ever written. Wow, that's that's hard. Um it's usually like the last one that I've written. <laughs> How relatable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, they, they get, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, it's like, once you release an album, it's like, that's sort of like the old, that's like old news. You're already writing, you're already, you know, writing mm -hmm. new material. Yeah. So. It, it really does feel like the thing that speaks to the current moment, the thing that speaks to who we are now, what we feel now, what we long to express now is the most treasured. I, I used to say that I could never pick favorites on any of the albums I had released because they all felt like my children and it felt like incorrect to choose a favorite. But when Down Come the Walls came out, I had an I was unabashed about the fact that I had a favorite. And since then, I feel like each project has had one that means more to me mm. for whatever reason mm. than the others do. I still, all, I love all of my children equally. And yet <laughs> there are some to whom I might give an extra cookie. <laughs> I love that. What, what is it? Is it the 13 times one? No, I, I oh. do love that. That has a special place in my heart because of what I was growing through when it was written. But uh, it's a song called Hold Your Hand, which um, it's that was inspired by a book of poetry that I had been given by a then partner. He had heard me talk about how much I dislike the word God because of how many horrible things have been done in the name of God. I just like to me, it feels like a dirty word. And he decided that he was going to give me a book of poetry called Love Poems from God that was Daniel Ladinsky's translations of 12 different poets from the East and West. Mm -hmm. And he thought maybe this would help soften how I felt about it. And what it did instead, it did not soften how I feel about <laughs> that word. What it did instead was give me a huge amount of inspiration for, um, for my own work. Like I found so much comfort in these individuals' expressions of their relationship with the divine. I always cringed a little bit when somebody used the word God in the poem, but then sometimes like Hafiz writes about, um, is, is it he the one who writes about bumping into each other in the boat, him and oh, God? Yeah. There's, there's so, there was so much humor in, in one collection, mm -hmm. so much sensuality in another collection, so much like, aching relatability in another and so I I dog-eared that book so much I highlighted I drew in it I I pointed to favorite lines and put big stars next to favorite lines is it and called two giant fat people by Hafiz <laughs> so yeah yeah bumping in the boat I think that's bumping into each other I mean Bad it's just what it's saying at its <laughs> is it's great can I read it just so people know what yeah, we're talking about it's 
God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. Is that it? That's the one you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I've never heard that before. That's really sweet. And of course, I know that in that era and probably in the translation, there was no looking at the word fat as derogatory, but it has become very derogatory mm. in our era wrongly. Mm -hmm. Here we are. Um, it's meant to indicate that people taking up all this space are sitting side by side and they're just nudging up against each other. They can't help it. They are that close, that intimate, that woven together. And I don't know, so many of, so many of the poems in that book moved me in ways little and large. And what ended up coming out of it was the song, Hold Your Hand, which felt like a poem that was speaking between the divine and the human. It felt like the divine saying to the human, doesn't matter what you think of me, doesn't matter if you believe in me or not, doesn't matter what you do or don't do in your life, I am here. I will hold you always, that will never change. And when the violin was recorded, we did most of the recording together in um, Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco, but our violinist wasn't available, again, Bogdan. He wasn't available to come up for the studio process. So Ramdas went to him in Mexico um, to, get his magic on a couple of tracks and he played start to finish on hold your hand with clear skies and at the very end the skies opened up and the rain just poured down and that all got caught in the microphone and it sounds like this static fizzling and it ended almost as soon as it began and it was just like it was meant to be there in that moment and that was it oh wow Ramdas didn't do anything to change it in fact We've got lots of ambient sound from the Tulum region in lots of recording projects. <laughs> <laughs> so have you spent a lot of time in Tulum? Uh, over the years, never continuously, but I've gone back and forth um, either to do musical work with Randas and Bogdan or to um, rendezvous with friends who live there on occasion to do events sort of nearby. I've done events in Playa del Carmen and Puerto Morelos, uh, not too far away from Tulum, and then landed in Tulum because that's where my friends were. Um, and it's an amazing place. And I only wish that less of us knew that it existed so that <laughs> the locals could have their environment as it always was. So much yeah. about it has changed in the past decade. And I, I am sad about that. I frankly wish that I never knew it existed so that <laughs> it could remain as it was, but yeah. yeah, can't take it back. Yeah. We spent, I spent what about like four months there last year. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun time. Yeah. yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it is. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting place. It's so much like disparity between how people live. Yeah. Like, of course, because all of the developers and builders come in and buy the plots of land and then yeah. pour a boatload of money into them and then either use them as boutique hotels or rent them out on Airbnb. And then those places aren't available for the locals. And yeah. uh, it changes the cost of living. It changes the price of real estate. Like it's yeah. uh, interesting, really interesting place. <laughs> yeah. A different topic than the topic of your podcast, but one that, um, that bears having a light shown on it whenever the opportunity arises. Yeah. Oh, I don't have a topic necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> um, so should I take it that you have inspired artists on your podcast? <laughs> yes. So yeah, it's funny. The reason I called it inspired artists was because at the time I was um, really into this guy's uh, teachings, this guy, Gary Bodley. And he talked about just like following your inspiration in the mm -hmm. sense of like, if you're called to do something, try just doing it, you know, and see what mm -hmm. happens. So that's more, that was more kind of the inspired part of it, I guess. But obviously artists do have inspiration, but everybody has inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really, truly. Oh, I didn't mean to single out anybody who doesn't categorize themselves as an artist. I just thought it was oh, such yeah. an interesting title. And 
at the same time felt like it's probably worth saying for the sake of any artists who happen to be listening who feel like they're empty of inspiration that every single one of us goes through that fallow season mm. there's not a single artist that I personally know or whose work I've come across and then dug into their biography of, of that whole collective of people I admire or people I know personally everybody talks about multiple fallow periods where they just it doesn't make sense anymore or um uh, something feels incongruous and they have to put their art aside for a moment in order to be able to figure out what that incongruousness is. I lived briefly in Los Angeles with a friend who's a painter and um, she had so sweetly said to me, I have the second bedroom that's typically my painting studio, but I feel empty at the moment. So I'm not using my painting studio. So you can stay there for a few months. And it's like, great. That's exactly what I need. Thanks very much. And I found that so interesting and her ability to acknowledge it and be at peace with it and recognize that she would come back to this thing that she loved and that clearly loved her in the right time, in the time that made sense in her bones. And, and we would both honor that. I would move somewhere else once that moment had come. And as it happened, I, um, I found the next place that I was going to move to. And she said, you know, this timing is pretty spooky because I was just going to tell you that I think I am ready to get back into there with my paints and brushes and see what comes up on the canvas. And I've, I've carried that with me. It's an incredible, important reminder for all artists that it's not always just pouring out of us. It's not always ideas all day, every day. Mm -hmm. That's a fun chapter to be in. That's a um, that's a sort of a hop in energy to have and to like still be up at three in the morning because at midnight a great idea for a melody struck and you know you had to get it down before it evaporated mm -hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. that's cool but it's nice to have the opposite as well yeah I think we're I think we're always kind of creating something too I'm reminded of like babies you know like everybody's always comparing their babies like your baby has hair mine has teeth like they're always working on something they're crawling you know there's something going on but yeah. it's not it's not always the things that we think should be going on and I think that's right. happening for us too like when there's not creativity maybe there's healing maybe there's yeah. rest that needs to happen absolutely Integration. Oh, big amen to that <laughs> like okay so I toured relatively nonstop from 2012 until 2019 wow. long stretch of just going and yes there were breaks in between but I didn't yet have a full management team I just had an assistant who helped with some communication on occasion um, and so I would be recording an album while also booking a tour and then I'd be on tour while finalizing masters and then I'd be doing the books for the tour while putting out the music and then I'd be like it was non-stop regardless of of how non-stop the events themselves were and it was a really hard um really incredible period of life but it was one that I realized I actually needed to be done with long before I actually I, I even had the thought to pump the brakes um, so I had chosen for myself that I wasn't going to tour at all in 2020. I was going to catch up on all the stuff that had uh, fallen Wish by the wayside. granted. <laughs> my brother called me, my brother who was for a while managing um, uh, the tours for a friend of ours. He called me uh, in March-ish, April-ish of 2020. And he said, are you God? <laughs> this was coming because if so I would have appreciated a heads up <laughs> undo all of my work and rebuild it for next year or the year after and uh I said yes my child <laughs> uh, I said please don't use that dirty word <laughs> no I it was just 
dumb luck. And I really felt for all of my peers because I knew exactly what had gone into building those tours and, and planning yeah. those releases and just when it all evaporates into thin air. Oh, the loss, the loss. I mean, everybody lost something huge in that chapter. And I appreciate that we gained the ability to slow down and, and attempt to recalibrate. But I don't think 100% of people gained that. I don't think 100% of people had the means and the resources to be able to gain that. And I know a lot of people suffered in the process as well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got a break. It sounds like you needed it. Well, it happened right at the time when all of the stories about our community's history. That was very interesting to me. Yeah, just boom. I honestly, I know for sure that if I had had big things on my calendar and COVID had not happened and only the community fallout had happened, I would have gone catatonic. There's just no way I would have been able to do anything to which I had been committed. So it was fortunate in that way that I hadn't extended myself in a public arena and put deposits on venues and made commitments to hundreds of people, just uh, the opportunity to sit in a daze and stare at a wall and determine what my next impulse in my body was, was vital. I, I, I told my therapist this morning that if not for our work, which started in September of 2020 and has continued almost weekly up till now, if not for our work, I would be in a hole somewhere, mm. curled up in a fetal position, cold and scared and immobilized. Like I, she, I think, is the reason why all of the, the newest music that is my stories rather than the Outlaw Ocean Project stories, our work together, I think, is the reason why that was even able to be born. Mm. it's hard to find words for something when you're sitting inside of the trauma vortex like it took me ages mm -hmm. in fact some of the songs that were written in this process only the um chord progression and the basic train of the melody was written at the time of our recording I then went away with homework to find what what uh, lyrics belonged in there mm. and it it took a long while eventually though. So I was going to ask you, has your writing process changed? But it sounds like very much. Yes, dramatically. <laughs> Honestly, I'm so glad you asked that because this is a great thing for a podcast with this theme. Um, my process has always been to go into the studio with a producer and I serve as a co-producer and we arrange things together. And sometimes all the musicians are there with us. And sometimes we send things to people and they add their layers on top. Um, but my process has always been to go in with a huge chunk of material. I've, I've been tinkering with stuff beforehand and I show up and I say, all right, here's this thing. What do you think? And my producer will say, oh, that's cool, but I think it needs, um, I think it needs this twist right here, or uh, how about if we try it this way, and maybe remove those lyrics and write your own. That was the process very much with my first album. Each successive one, until now, I have gone in with my chunk of material, and then organic things have happened within the studio week or two weeks, however long we ended up taking. This one had nothing. I had come away from too many years in a row of touring. The, everything felt empty. The, I was at the, the bottom of an empty well and the dirt was bone dry and I kept on digging and everything underneath it was dry and there was just nothing. Um, but then Ian's proposal came in and collaborators said yes, said an enthusiastic yes. And we went into the studio together and co-wrote or their idea for music gave me ideas for lyrics, or I, I don't know, it was, it was different for every song. Um, and that, that was very scary for me. I was 
willing to give it a go, but I was super skeptical about writing on the spot and being that integrated in a collaborative process. Because I like collaboration, but I am also a little bit of a control. I don't want to use the word freak because that's not fair. I like control. I think it's because I had so little control in my childhood. Just um, that's so much to unpack, so I won't go there. I'll simply say, um, <laughs> I think I think a lot of us did not have a lot of control growing <laughs> up, but I know yours was definitely different than mine. <laughs> a boarding school. Um, experience begun at the age of six because a spiritual teacher said so um, really took away the ability to have any sense of control whatsoever but yes I believe you're right I believe there's not a single person on the planet who would report that their childhood was sunshine and roses and they felt completely supported and all always able to speak up about their needs and some illusion of control in there, etc. But I think much of my adult life is a reaction to much of my childhood. I'm at least starting to understand that that's likely the case. And um, I didn't mean to uh, downplay your no, that I'd at all, by the way, but I just think it's funny because I think children just are usually controlled. Definitely. I understand there was a much greater degree <laughs> that was going on there, but yeah. It's, yep. Yeah, I think we look back and go like, hmm, a lot of decisions were made for me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I hope for an evolution in parenting and the, the ability for children to really feel true autonomy while a container is held for them, while, while certain boundaries and rules are put in place since kids do seem to thrive in a framework. There needs to be enough permission and freedom, but there needs to be a healthy set of boundaries and certain limitations. Um, yeah, just maybe not boarding school on the other side of the planet. Yeah. As the container. Mm. Anyway, uh, that's a, a tangent. We were headed in the direction of, oh, I'm a little bit type A mm -hmm. in how I approach uh, everything I do, but most especially the creative processes that I choose to embark on. Um, so this was simultaneously terrifying and liberating to just dive into the abyss with a couple of other people and say, what do we got? What does today want to say? What does the outside environment have for us that we can maybe take as inspiration? What is the feeling that is in my heart right now? I kept getting into the pool at the place where we were staying and having lyrics pop into my brain that had nothing, almost nothing to do with water, but like that seemed to be the most creative place yeah. of all. And then I would bring them into the room and go, I wanna do this. And they'd go, great, let's do it. <laughs> it was wonderful. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share before we close out, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, to any artists who might be listening, I, I hope that you enjoy the work that you choose to dive into. I hope that you feel supported and seen and held by the people in your life. And if that's not the case, I hope that there is somebody you've never met who finds a way of giving you a boost by supporting and celebrating what you do, what you make, how you make it. Um, I feel like I'm constantly striving to trust the intuitions and impulses that come up for me in my creative process, where if something tells me that it's not time, even though a song is finished or an album is finished or a music video is finished, if my body says no, I really tried to listen to that. And I feel very fortunate to have collaborators in my life, including a record label that supports my music, that understand that when I say it and, and honor that and do what they can to lift me up in case I've fallen into some sort of a pit. Um, 
I just always wish for everybody to feel held. Um, I know that we don't all get that exactly when we need it. So this is my prayer for that, for you, artist listening. For anyone who doesn't consider themselves an artist, you probably are <laughs> in a multitude of ways. And um, I, I hope that you're enjoying creating your life because that too is art. Hmm. And for anyone who, who had no context for some of the personal history that I brought up and that Porter and I happen to share, um, there are articles online that can, can give you more of a backstory. Um, I, I have written about it on social media in small ways and will eventually write about it in larger ways. And music that I have written over the past couple of years and recorded and will eventually release possibly this year um, speaks to some of those themes. Uh, but ultimately it's probably going to be other people's journalism and maybe even documentaries that are going to paint the picture best. Mm. Um, suffice it to say, some shady stuff went down and a lot of people felt betrayed and broken as a result of that. Um, and Porter, I love you. I love you deeply. <laughs> I have admired you up close and from afar for years. You have what I very affectionately refer to as a Disney princess voice. <laughs> when I hear you sing, it feels like all of the, all of the, there's a very particular quality in the voices of, of these characters who were a part of my childhood and so there's a fondness in my heart I pick apart all of the problematic aspects of all of those films <laughs> now but one thing that is constant is this sort of purity in their voice and you you have that in spades and I celebrate it and I thank you for sharing all that you do and for having me here this evening afternoon whatever time it is wherever you are Oh, well, thank you. I wasn't expecting that. Thank you. I love you too, by the way. I love your music and this was really <laughs> wonderful. I think you're extremely courageous and I thank you for, you know, being willing to share. So do you want to tell people also how they can keep up with you and what you're doing and releasing and all that? Well, What's the that best way? So well pointed out because this is the thing I usually forget. So thank <laughs> you for that. Um, I have a website www.jajagdish.com. I'm going to guess Porter's going to put it somewhere in. It will be in the podcast notes, notes too. Yeah. Click on. Yes. Um, from there, uh, you can find just about everything I've worked on um, being on my newsletter, which you can sign up at the website, which you can sign up for at the website, uh, is the best way to hear things directly and first and quickest because I have made it a mission to announce things first there. Um, I sometimes forget, but I'm working on it. Um, I'm on all the social media places. I have a love-hate relationship with social media and I use it in a way that I find um, therapeutic, personally therapeutic and also I try to not take it too seriously. So I alternate between writing in it like it's a journal. You'll come across posts that feel very much like intimate journal entries and making great fun of myself and the people I work with and uh, just being a goofball. Um, I believe there is also a YouTube channel. That is easy Probably enough is. to find. And yes, I happen to know that there is. I use that the wrong terminology. To um, I did not used to make music videos, but I do now because it's a creative muscle that I'm finally excited to flex. And um, yeah, following along there is also great. And it will allow you to see the visual version of the music that we are creating these days, which 
seems to be really appealing to a lot of people. I had no idea (laughs) or I knew, but I wasn't willing to admit it to myself because I just wasn't ready. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, have a wonderful evening. Thank you so, so much again. Yeah. Thank you again for this. It's been, it's been a bit like therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I've just found a therapist. So I'm, I'm very excited. Yeah. Really Yay! Good. This is me celebrating very, <laughs> very, very big for you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah, so I will let you know when this comes out. And thank you to you listening for joining us. We'll see you in the next podcast. And bye. All right. Thanks for tuning in. So I'm going to share, as promised, Jai Jagdish's outro that she sent me post-recording. She writes, I wish I had said in my write-up that I am a big believer in creativity for creativity's sake. I don't feel that our creativity requires an audience in order to be valuable and life-affirming. It is that intrinsically. I feel like the whole world benefits from each of us creating even if no one else sees or hears what we create. Elizabeth Gilbert wrote a great book on this subject, which I highly recommend. It's called Big Magic. And I will also include the playlist that she talks about in here called Songs I Wish I Wrote in the podcast description, as well as all of her links. All right. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing on the platform of your choosing and leaving us a comment. This helps considerably for all the algorithms to figure out just how valuable it is. Thank you for participating. To keep in touch with me and receive updates, please sign up for my newsletter at portersinger.com. You'll get a free download, updates on my self-healing sound courses, workshops, and other community building events that I'm creating. Have a beautiful day.